Welcome back to the Mysteria podcast. I'm Marcus Da Silva, and I am very pleased to be joined today by Miss Catherine Fogarty. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Pleasure to have you on. So I guess kind of how this started was you recently published a book, and I think that was kind of the crux of this podcast was for that book. And I have read the book. It's fantastic. We're going to get into it uh, more on the back half of this podcast, but actually I'll show it for the audience. It's called Murder on the Inside, the true story of the deadly riot at Kingston Penitentiary. And then that's the book there. Great book. So yeah, we'll definitely dive into the content of that near the end. But before that, we'll just kind of have a discussion and the line of work that you're involved in is super interesting and lots of good stories there. So we'll, we'll kind of dive in and right. I guess we'll just start from the beginning. So where is it, where did you grow up? Where are you from? Uh, I'm actually from Toronto, born and raised uh, in the West end of Toronto. And uh, now I live in the, sort of the, the downtown core, but, uh, but yeah, from Toronto, went to school, uh, Went to school, started in Toronto, and then actually ended up in um, the University of Sydney, Australia, actually. So, uh, and uh, University of Guelph. And then um, before I wrote the book, or part of writing the book, I was uh, doing a uh, an MFA, a Master's in Fine Arts at uh, a King's University in Halifax. So, um, I'm one of those perpetual students, I think. <laughs> And how did you end up in Sydney? Was that for a undergrad degree? No, it was actually for a graduate degree. My, my first career was in social work. So my undergraduate degree was in social work uh, with a specialization in criminology, which is part of why I think I kind of was attracted to this, the story about the, um, the prison riot. Uh, it's funny how everything kind of comes full circle in, in your life. Uh, so yeah, my first career was in social work and uh, I was working for the city uh, for a number of years. I worked with a number of different uh, at-risk populations. Uh, and at the time I was a social, work, social worker that was actually during the AIDS epidemic as well. So I, I did a lot of work with um, the AIDS community in Toronto. Um, anyway, so I was working for the city and it was actually, uh, it was something, you know, many years ago, it was called Bob, the Bob Ray days, and Bob Ray was our, our was our, our premier, and um, they needed to save some money. So what they did is they offered, uh, you know, any government employees, you could take a year off to to study, and your job would be held for you. And I mean, of course, that's a very rare opportunity. And I was doing uh, my my bachelor of social work uh, part time up at York. And I just kind of went, you know what, this is the best opportunity to, to go. And I'd never done that, you know, that kind of traveling after you, you graduate from university, I had just gone straight to work. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to combine these two and uh, apply to the University of Sydney to do a, a master's in social work. And, uh, and off I went for a great, the great adventure. And I guess, so you would have been about 21, 22? No, no, I was actually probably about 29. I was thinking it was about 29 at the time. Because as I said, I'd been oh, right. yeah, for several for years. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then going back to school part-time. Uh, and that's when I said, they said, you know, you can take this year off. And I said, okay, I'm off. <laughs> and then um, after that, did you, so after Sydney, where did you go? 
Yeah. So what happened after Sydney is I did, I came back uh, and went back to my job. So this was with social services in Toronto, like the welfare department. Uh, and as I said, I'd worked there uh, for quite some time at that point. And it was a very, it was a government job. Um, and uh, I just realized when I came back, I, I think I went back for about five months and I thought I cannot, I cannot do this. And, you know, one of the things that happens, I think, with many types of careers and, and happened to me in social work is as you, you get into a career and you, you start out, you know, working with frontline, working directly with people. I mean, I worked at a, a shelter for abused women. As I said, I worked with um, various AIDS uh, communities and groups in Toronto, uh, worked with, um, you know, young teenagers uh, dealing with pregnancy, uh, street youth, et cetera. And then as you, as you kind of get, you know, more mature and more successful, you actually start getting further and further away from what you intended to do. So, so at that point, when I came back from Sydney, I mean, I was a manager in a social services department. So I, you know, I didn't even see clients anymore. So I just thought, you know, this isn't what I intended to do. Uh, so I left, um, left social services and left social work. And my, uh, my a very good friend of mine was a uh, casting director, a uh, very well-known casting director uh, throughout Canada and, uh, and television producer. And she said, you know what, why don't you come and work with me? And I said, well, you know, I can't do that. I'm, I'm a social worker. I don't know anything about TV. Um, but, you know, it was just the timing. And I just said, okay, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to jump, I'm going to take the leap. And, um, and so that's what I did. And then, you know, for the next 20 odd years worked in, in uh, television. So, and, and still, you know, still am to, to, to today. I want to back you up a bit because I was kind of curious about that. So going into social work, I guess then you would have been about 22 going in to about 29 yep. when you when you left. Uh, was that difficult to, like as a young woman, would that have been difficult to learn how to compartmentalize work? And because, you know, the, the work that you're in, I mean, tremendous life experience, yeah. but certainly tugging on the heartstrings at times, I guess, is the expression. <laughs> yeah, um, it's very hard. And I think a lot of people uh, burn out after a little while. Um, it is it is very difficult work, but but it's also extremely rewarding uh, because, you know, you're, as I said, you're, if you're working directly with people um, and hopefully making, you know, a, a little bit of a difference. I mean, I know when I worked at, at the shelter for abused women, um, that was, you know, that was very, very difficult because they would come in and they would often come in with children and you could see how the cycle of abuse was continuing. You know, you'd see like a little five-year-old boy, um, attacking his mother. Um, and so things like that were, were very difficult. Also with, when you work in frontline social work, you, a lot of times you're working shift work. Like, for example, uh, in that position, I worked shift work. Uh, and actually, when I went to Sydney, uh, Sydney, Australia, I continued working and I was working at um, a hospice for people with AIDS and would work a 24 hour cycle where I basically kind of lived there and slept there. Um, and that was for people who were, you know, basically, you know, probably a few months away from from passing on. So. So again, you can't change that outcome, but you know you can you can be there and, and be as supportive and uh, as, as you can be. So it was extremely rewarding work. 
when the I've had three I've done three podcasts with most recently with Alan Samuelson, who's a HIV patient. He's in his 80s now. Uh, Dr. Julio Montaner from uh, Vancouver here and uh, Dr. David Cool as well. So we kind of, I, I feel like I got quite an education on that, but one of the things that really struck me about the, particularly with the, the AIDS pandemic was that it was just so unprecedented because of it was young people and older people, like it didn't really discriminate. Like it was a really unique group of people and not really something that the medical system had really seen before. And then certainly worldwide, you know, it was, you know, much greater implications on that. So yeah. must've been just a, I mean, I, I, again, you know, it's terrible, but must've just been fascinating work. Yeah, I mean, it it basically decimated an entire community in Toronto. Uh, I worked with one organization, and I know, you know, several years down the line, I think there was one person left that I had originally started working with. Um, so, so an entire uh, generation uh, of people um, were decimated. And uh, I always remember... Uh, one day uh, being uh, at the office in social services and we, we were on Charles Street, Charles and Bloor. And uh, not too far from Charles and Bloor is um, the original hospice for, for people with AIDS called Casey House, which was very, very well known at the time. And my colleagues this one day at lunch hour said, we got to run over to Casey House. And I said, oh, you know, why? When, when Princess Diana's going to be there. <laughs> and so all of us ran over and, you know, watch Princess Diana as she as she uh, came came over to to Casey House to pay you know pay her respects because she was one of the first people and certainly one of the you know most well-known women in the world who actually reached out and touched a person with AIDS and went to hospices and hospitals and and talked to these people and met with these people because you know Many people were were terrified uh, that you know it was it was a contagious disease and and they couldn't be you know they couldn't shake a person's hand or something like that. So there was there was so much stigma attached to the disease, and she um, she definitely is somebody that really helped to um, to change that perspective. Wow, I know it's it's so interesting, you know, and that and, and in the book too. One of the things that fascinates me is that you you can learn a lot about society now by digging into the past a bit and you can see how things have changed and how things have stayed the same and hopefully things are going in the right direction but it's fascinating mm -hmm. to get get a window a little window into the past it's mm -hmm. fascinating stuff yeah it certainly is it certainly is yeah so. And, and so moving forward then so you you come back you're in canada you start mm -hmm. working with your friend who's the the casting director and what's yeah. your first, what's your first kind of intro level job into, I guess it'd be media. Yeah. So my first job was basically in, in casting. Uh, we were casting. So of course, Toronto is a, you know, is a Mecca for film production. Uh, so we were casting for various television series and, uh, and films that were, you know, either Canadian or American. Um, uh, I remember, uh, casting a film with uh with uh what uh, I, I may not pronounce this correctly benicio de toro the oh. director and he was doing wow. a film, yeah <laughs> and he was doing a film like gosh i'm trying to think of the name of it it was actually a film about giant cockroaches 
that I remember. Okay. <laughs> so, I just I can't remember the name of it. And uh, Marina Servino was was starring in the in the film. And um, so as I said, yeah. So that's how that's how we started out. We uh, also did. Um, we worked um, with various directors and producers in Canada. So we were doing like a series like Road to Avonlea, you know, casting all the people in that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, a lot of a lot of different experiences and learning, you know, we'd get at that point because it was, you know, we didn't really we weren't really reliant on computers at that time. So if we put out a casting call, uh, you'd, you'd send out what was called a breakdown and you'd, you'd send out information, usually, I guess, by fax machine at that point um, and all these different roles. So, you know, we need a female 20 to 25 and all the different requirements. And then we would literally get thousands of um eight by ten you know right. sheets in of all these people and i remember um sitting in our we had a basement office and i remember you know being on the floor and would literally like just you know sort all these okay there's the the females and there's the males and there's the kids and um and sorting all these stacks and stacks of of uh, eight by ten photographs and then going through them um, and then we would hold, you know, auditions. And you know, so that was my, that was my trial by fire with respect to, to the business. So. It might seem a bit dry, but I'm very curious, which is like, what actually goes into casting? Like, the, cause I, <laughs> I just have no concept of what you would be looking for in that. Yeah. I've never, I don't have any experience in that. Well, area, I'm not going to tell you. No, <laughs> just um, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know what? It's, um, it's a very interesting uh, role to have. And um, the, the best thing I can say, because we've, you know, since then I've, I've hired a lot of people, a lot of hosts and, and things for our, our various shows that we've produced you know, I always say you just, you know it when you see it. Right. So, um, so part of the process, of course, is narrowing that down. So you're going to have auditions and then it just gets, you know, kind of smaller and smaller and smaller. And then, I mean, this has happened to me several times where somebody walks in and they've just, they've just got it. <laughs> Whatever that is. Right. Uh, they've got it. And, uh, and you may have seen, you know, one 200 people by that time uh, i mean it's a long it can be a long process um and and when at, when i first began i mean i was working for other companies other production companies other directors so you'd have a whole group of people in that audition um so you've got very you know a lot of opinions um and then as we started producing our own you know our own series well then you know there was only generally two opinions in the room um and uh yeah, so I could I could give you a few examples of that where it just just clicked. So it's kind of like yeah. watching Kramer on Seinfeld. It's like he's perfect. You know, <laughs> you just you just know. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And, and and when I watch shows now, um, you know, the different series on Netflix and, and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, casting ca between the casting and the writing. Those are the two most critical aspects uh, of any series. I mean, you know, the the Friends, you know, reunion that just happened. I haven't actually watched it, and I was I was never a big Friends uh, person. I you know so. Um, 
but think about the casting of that. I mean, again, they hit gold. None of those people knew each other before they were cast. Uh, they were all fairly inexperienced and they just, as I said, they, they hit gold uh, with, with who they cast and how they were able to, uh, how they interacted and their dynamics, so. And what would, just so I refer to it correctly, would your job title have been like a casting director? Casting like what's director. Jack, casting director. Casting so director, yeah. as a casting director, do you work with like closely with directors and producers or are you kind of separate from that process or does uh, it change? No, you, well, you're, you're working very closely with them uh, in casting the show or movie or series, whatever it happens to be. Um, so once the casting is up and up and running, then then your job, like once they start production, your job is pretty much done at that point because um, you've you've placed the people in the roles. But but again, you'd always be you'd still be working because sometimes uh, um, somebody wouldn't work out. Uh, uh, casting choice would change, et cetera, et cetera. So so you're still involved, but primarily most of your work is done uh, before the, they start uh, rolling cameras. And what were, should be, if you can't answer it, then don't answer it, that's okay. But what were some of the kind of ones that maybe stood out to you where it was like, oh, that was just a great pick and it worked out well for the show or for the movie? Well, um, you know, that's an interesting segue into, you know, uh, to my next career, which was basically television production uh, and opening up uh, my own production company and, and starting to work on, on my own series. What happened for us, as I said, my business partner and I, and we're, we're still business partners, you know, 20 years uh, later. Um, so as I said, her, her background was, um, was in casting. And, uh, and then um, we, we actually got a call one day and it was from another production company. And they were, uh, it was just the very beginning of all these lifestyle type programs. So, you know, when I was younger, when I was a kid, we had, you know, five channels probably <laughs> in Canada, right? Everybody watched CBC and Hockey right. Night in Canada kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, as I said, so this is, when is this? I guess, you know, early 90s. Uh, the network started building like lifestyle and women's network and the, the pet network and the, the gardening network. All these new networks started up and they needed programming, which is the, mm -hmm which is, you know, was called lifestyle programming. And so somebody approached us, it was another company and they said, we're, we're producing a show about uh, a women's repair show, funny enough. And they knew that my, my business partner um, had probably had more tools uh, than any man that they had ever met. She was just that kind of person who, who you know, is, is very, very creative and very good with tools and builds things. So they for just, and that's why they approached her. I mean, she wasn't really producing, but they, they knew they were doing this show about women's repair, uh, women doing repairs around their, their homes and things like that. And they kind of heard that, that this was something she did on her own. So they approached approached us and said, you know, would you be willing to produce this? And we're like, okay. So, um, so that series ended up being, it was called A Repair to Remember with Meg Ruffman. Um, and Meg Ruffman was an, uh, an actor, Canadian actor who was very well known for uh, Road to Avonlea. 
Um, and this is what she did in her spare time. This is, she loved uh, working with tools and, and woodworking and things like that and could, you know, fix anything. Uh, so they, they built a show around her and that was the very first uh, series that, that we produced. And then, and then um, from that, things kind of exploded in this lifestyle world. So we just started doing full-time production um, and, and, you know, basically left the, the casting casting work uh let that let that go and became full-time television producers as far as the so okay so i guess the this is around the 90s yeah okay and were you working pretty much entirely out of i guess like ontario to be toronto specifically yeah yeah so that that point we were doing you know, the women's repair show, we did uh, a flower. We actually, uh, that was actually a great series. We did a flower series, it was called uh, Flower Power. And it was for uh, the network HGTV at the time. And at that time, HGTV actually had, still had G in it, which means gardening. Um, so they were doing gardening shows. So uh, we were asked to do this, uh, this series. And um, that's where I actually started uh, writing um, because every episode of this series was basically like the documentary of a single flower. Uh, and we traveled all over the world because we would go where that flower was originally native to or where the, the, the world's leading uh, producer of that particular flower was. So we were, uh, you know, in England, obviously doing English roses and Hawaii and Belgium and I mean, you name it. Uh, we, we went to where these flowers are and we need they needed a writer. And I said, OK, well you know, <laughs> let me give it a try. Uh, so there I was, you know, running to different libraries. And I remember going up to a, um, one of the, the, the big parks in, in Toronto up on Lawrence, Lawrence Avenue has a, a big gardening center there and they actually have a gardening library. And I would go up there and I'd pull out all the books about peonies or roses or, you know, whatever it happened to be and, and, and started writing these scripts. And that, and then we would go, we'd go on, we'd be traveling. And um, my business partner always talks about remembering that I'd be like in, in the, in a hotel room and, you know, writing in the middle of the night for the next day's, the next day's shoot. So that's how, yeah, that's actually how I started, started writing. I think I can speak for everybody listening. What a cool job that would have been. Holy, <laughs> so cool. It was, it was. But you know, I have to say the one thing about, about TV and, and producing that people don't realize, and I always make this as a reference. So we went to Hawaii. Uh, we were doing Bird of Paradise and uh, Plumeria, which is what they make the, the lays out of. And there was a couple others, I think. Uh, so we were there for, you know, probably 10 days. And I always joke, I never saw the beach. Because when you're when you're working on set on location, uh, it's obviously a very expensive endeavor for mm. the production company. So you are you're working pretty much 24 seven for that location. So you're up, you're on set by, you know, you leave your hotel room in dark because you're on set by say 7 a.m. And then you're just going full, full, full all day. And then, yeah, going going back to the hotel at the, you know, at the end of the shoot of, you know, probably a 14 hour day minimum um, and uh, grabbing, grabbing some, some food with the rest of the crew. And then, as I said, I'd be back in the hotel room <laughs> writing, writing for the next day. So, so 
it's not as, uh, you know, I, I mean, it was absolutely wonderful experience. Um, and I learned a lot about flowers at the time, <laughs> but uh, we went to Costa Rica, you know, that was another place, but, but it's, but it's definitely not as glamorous as, uh, as people, people think it, it may be. So. I've heard that a lot from musicians too, where it's pretty much the same story. It's like, oh, wow, you get to do a world tour. And it's like, yeah, well, hang on. So we see the hotel, we see the venue and we see the green room and then we're on the plane or the bus and yep. next city, next city. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a grind. Definitely. Yeah, Cause not. your time is very limited and, and, mm -hmm. and your time is very expensive because you've got however many people, you know, you crew with you and stuff. So yeah, absolutely. But, but still, I mean, you know, a, a great experience. Okay, so you're working, you're doing that show, and that show ran the the flower show, which a really good concept, by the way. It's a really interesting concept yeah. for a TV show. And how long did you do that for? That was um probably three years. I think it, they did end oh. up doing, uh, gosh, yeah, probably seventy. In that 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 back then too, and if you got an order for a series, it would be twenty six episodes. Um, oh, and that was just, okay. that was, yeah, exactly. And that was, that was <laughs> nobody even thought of less. Yeah. It was like, you know, every, so every season was 26 episodes. Um, so I know, I think we did over 70, 70 episodes of that series. Um, and then, uh, and then we moved on to, uh, some cooking shows because cooking, the cooking network, you know, had just started up. So we did, uh, a, quite a few cooking series. So, you know, learned, learned all about that and building kitchens on set and things like that. So, uh, so that was, that was fun. I'm not, I'm not, a. uh, a cook so uh but i certainly learned learned a lot from the various chefs that we that we worked with so more of a general question i'm curious what the what, what were some of the changes that you've noticed because you're now you're still involved in production yeah and so what are some of the changes that you've observed from when you started to now and i'll just kind of make it a very general question just anything involved in in media well i mean the biggest probably the biggest change that that's happened uh over the years was respect with respect to the um you know video on demand uh that that changed the whole network model of of uh you know what somebody like i i do um we used to basically what we would do is go we'd pitch ideas to networks um, and, uh, you know, they would say yay or nay. And at that time, as I said, all the, all these networks had exploded. So there were so many of them and, uh, and they all needed programming. So you'd go to the HGTV and we did a lot of work with the women's women's network. Um, and there was, a, you know, the comedy network and there was a net history network. There was a network for everything. Over the last, you know, several years, that's all changed. And all those networks, because particularly in Canada, all the, the networks started amalgamating. So, you know, we went from however many, and we're almost back down to, to five <laughs> networks, and, and not five channels, but probably four or five networks that own everything. So all of those smaller, uh, smaller channels and smaller networks are now owned by either Rogers or Bell. So, uh, so they've all amalgamated. So as a producer, um, you know, for example, uh, the Women's Television Network and HGTV, if we had an idea, we could go to both of them. 
now both of those networks are owned by the same company. So, uh, so the, the R options became uh, much less. Uh, and then of course, then the video on demands started, which was the, the Netflixes and the Amazons. And so, so that's really made a, a, a tremendous uh, shift to, to what we do and, uh, and how we work. So, so it seems like the, how, how you phrase it, the, the monopolization of content has significant effect on kind of the people like you who are more on the, the yeah. front lines of creating content. Yeah, very significant. So what ended up happening for us, we and like, we don't even, we don't produce for, in Canada anymore. Everything oh. that we produce and anything we develop, we go straight to the US with uh, because oh. the Canadian market just uh, unfortunately just got too small. Uh, again, and um, the and their budgets started to to shrink dramatically as well. So, uh, so because in Canada, the difference between Canada and the U.S. Uh, I mean, it's kind of a, a complex scenario. But in Canada, you know, we have um, we have ownership uh, because of Canadian content legislation and Canadian content rules. So every network in Canada is mandated to produce. Uh, and air a certain amount of Canadian content, which means it's produced by Canadians. Um, and, and that actually started shifting. And so if they were say at a 70% CanCon rule um, in their programming, then you know it went down to 60 and 50 and and then started, that's really started shrinking. Um, and uh, which meant a lot of television, Canadian television independent companies went out of business. So, uh, so we were very fortunate that we, uh, we had a, a very successful show. Um, and, uh, but it is, it is produced through, uh, through the US and not Canada, so. And with the fact that the exchange rate from Canadian to American, I mean, now it's really bad again. It seems like it seems like it's always bad. I mean, geez, but uh, would that not be a factor to keep people like keep Canadians out and keep Americans in due to the just the price of operating in the States or not so much? Yeah, I mean, for for particularly for people in film, I mean, as we talked about earlier, when we were casting and, and still to this day, I mean, there's a lot of American production in Toronto and in Vancouver, of course, and that all relates back to tax credits. So a, a, an American film can come up to Canada and, and shoot uh, whatever they, they happen to be producing. And then, um, you know, they're getting, they're getting a 30% uh, tax you know, incentive on that. So it's, it's very affordable for them. And that's why there are so many here. Uh, and, you know, and as Canadian producers, we of course also get, uh, get tax credits and, and incentives as well. So, um, and, but in the U S when you produce in the U S if I, if I went to a network, whether again, I could go to an NBC or I could go to a Netflix. I mean, they're slightly different models, but in the U S you, as a producer, you do not own, um, that production, the, the, you, you don't own the IP. Um, so you are just pretty much a producer for hire. Uh, so that's, that's again, a very different financial model. Whereas what, what we have produced for Canada, we, we actually own and will always own. Um, as I said, that relates back to the, 
the, the Canadian content uh, rules and, and legislation. Has that changed over time? The, the idea of ownership over uh, content as far as intellectual property is concerned? Well, it has changed with respect to that, that number, that percentage of, of CanCon, as it's called, CanCon, um, it, it's diminished quite significantly. So as I said, you know, it was kind of a, you know, it was always a love-hate relationship because if a network had, you know, say, I mean, again, I'm just putting, uh, you know, throwing a number out. If they had a 70% CanCon uh, regulation in their programming, in their prime time programming, they had to work with Canadian producers. So they couldn't go, uh, you know, it's much cheaper for a network to go and acquire a format like America's Got Talent, uh, you know, um, all those different format shows. And so they did bring them up to Canada. Um, they did license Canadian formats. But um, so some more and more of that started happening because that's cheaper to do than actually producing through uh, through Canadian content. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so it just it just kind of slowly, slowly uh, got whittled away. I, I personally wouldn't even know what that those Canadian content rules are uh, anymore because, as I said, we we only produce for the U.S. now. So, I've been thinking about that because I'm glad you pointed it out because I guess it was a bit of an, an error on my part, which was there's been an explosion of filming in Vancouver in the last. Mm -hmm. I guess probably about the last 10 years. And I mean, like most notably, like they filmed the, I think they filmed the second, yeah, they filmed the second Deadpool here, but they filmed the the first Deadpool here and they actually shut down the Georgia Viaduct, which is like a main traffic hub, uh, traffic, um, what do you call it? Road into downtown Vancouver, downtown core. And they mm -hmm. shut that down for like a month and a half. It was chaos and all that stuff is quite funny but but they film like i mean like supergirl and all those like see i guess the network is cw the the american i think mm -hmm. they're on netflix and stuff too but okay. all those like arrow and and all those yeah. superhero ones they all film them up here and yeah. so i thought oh that's great like they must have more canadians involved but it actually doesn't seem too much like that from the ip side seems yeah. more like the American companies just kind of come up, they do their thing here and then they, they go back. Yeah. It's called a service production. So they will hire Canadians and they will get, you know, it's all sort of like a point-based system and, and stuff like that. So, so they will, uh, they will hire Canadians. Canadians generally won't be in the lead, may not yeah. be the director, <laughs> may not be the, you know, um, so, but you know, obviously, most of the crew will will mm. be Canadian. So, so it, it, I mean, it, it certainly still benefits everyone. Um, but you know, it's just it's it's indicative of all of all the creative industries in in Canada. Um, you know, I mean, going going back to segueing to to writing a book. I mean, the the Canadian publishing industry is is you know in 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 dire dire straits as well the music industry etc so it's just it's all the creative industries for sure and i'm curious how has social media if if at all has that had a impact on just kind of like your day-to-day -day operations or maybe the way that you will attack a production like has that had any influence over your line of work at all um, well, I think it does in general, because people, uh, you know, your audience, your viewers are, are feel much more connected. Um, because if you've, you know, if you've got, 
your favorite celebrity on Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or whatever, you know, you, you feel a different connection. So like the hosts of our show, you know, they have, they have a huge following. I mean, I've, I've been out with them in, in public and uh, it's insane. What, <laughs> what happens? I mean, and, and we're like, wow, we're just a little like Canadian, you know, uh, show. And I've, you know, they're followed, you know, through crowds and stuff like that. So, uh, so definitely, I think, you know, social media has, has certainly had a huge impact. Um, and it's just people communicating. I mean, you know, how, we used to watch TV because we'd get, you know, get a guide in our, our newspaper and that gave us a list of what, what was available. But now, you know, we're, we're watching uh, things based on, you know, what, what, you know, a friend said on social media or what somebody recommended on social media or what the buzz is on social media. So it's, it's had a huge, huge impact for sure. Yeah. I'm always curious about that just because it, it seems like, I guess, yeah, that, that does seem to be the case where it's more about not necessarily a change in like your day-to-day operations, but more so on the platform where people can now become aware of your product. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so getting more recent, what are some of the shows, I guess, maybe we'll start about 10 years ago. It seems like we left off about there. What were yeah. What are some of the shows that are kind of of note uh, of the last 10 years and then we'll we'll get into the more recent stuff. Well, what happened for us, as I said, you know, again, we went through various types of shows. So we did, uh, you know, the repair show, uh, the gardening show, well, it wasn't gardening show, it was a flower show. Um, and then, as I said, we got into a number of different cooking series. We did probably four or five different cooking series. And then um, I, I had this crazy idea uh, my parents lived had lived in the same house for many, many years in Etobicoke, and I was always trying to get them to renovate their home and and redo like their kitchen and they wouldn't you know my mother was always like, my mother was always like those are real wood cabinets you know in the kitchen like we're not gonna take those i'm like oh my god and i was at my business partner and i were driving one day and i said to her i said what do you think about the the idea of a show called my parents house and she said what are you you know what are you talking about and i said well um and it was just again when when design shows you know stuff about the home was really starting to to explode. And I, and I had been trying to think of like, where's the, where would you get the most extreme before and afters? Because the design shows are all about before and after. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, that's going to get your parents (laughs) out. Um, And uh, so we went, uh, we went and did a little demo at my parents' house, um, which was pretty hilarious. And uh, every year we would go to the the BAMP uh, television festival and I met with uh, one of the network executives at, uh, at HGTV and I pitched her this idea. I said, you know, it's my parents' house uh, where, you know, two adult children come home and, uh, you know, renovate a room in, in mom and dad's home. And she was like, love it. Let's do it. And I was like, really? <laughs> so, um, I mean, that doesn't, trust me, that doesn't happen very often. Um, and uh, so that was our first foray into renovation and design and we did uh i think 56 episodes of that series um 
and I ended up, and that was my first foray into directing. Uh, I directed over 40 of those episodes. So, uh, so that was again, an interesting, um, an interesting challenge. I had never directed before. So, so I had produced series, I had, I had written series, but I'd never really been like you know, on set directing. Um, and I just, you know, I, I, don't, I don't even remember. I ended up getting thrown into it somehow. Maybe somebody was sick or, you know, th that's how these things happen. Um, just sometimes very accidentally. So I uh, ended up directing, um, as I said, over 40 episodes of that. And, uh, and that was, uh, that was very, very, that was very successful in HGTV. Of course, a lot of people could relate to it and it was fun. It was always, we had two really great hosts and, and uh, we would go into people's homes uh, and it was, we did a four day renovation. Uh, so it was kind of real time and we would work m many, many evenings right through like right through the night, we had a whole construction crew and design crew, and obviously, and sometimes I'd go home late at night, and I and and yeah, I'd leave the crew there, and they'd be they'd be working working through the night, um, and then from from that, and actually, we did this really great animal series too. My my business partner and I are both uh, huge animal lovers, uh, and I had. Um, uh, I went to the Women's Network and uh, pitched an idea called Animal Magnetism. And it was um, a documentary series about people's relationship with animals, uh, not a pets show. Uh, it was really about different. Uh, we, I mean, we went covered every animal from elephants to seals, and it was just about how people help animals and animals help people. And every episode was uh, three stories, so we did seventy-eight. Uh, Seventy-eight. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and again, that's how I, you know, uh, I, I wrote all of those episodes too, uh, and traveled. That was quite a travel uh, traveling series because we went wherever these great stories were. Anyway, getting back to the design. So, so we finished. Uh, we did three years in my parents' house, and then uh, again, you know, what? So, what years? So, this is about 10, 10 years ago, at least. And uh, my business partner and I, we go into the Women's Network, and uh, we're pitching ideas. It's a you know a pitch session that you do you know a couple times a year when you're working with networks, and we had various ideas and you know I said we we're kind of throwing them against the wall and nothing's sticking like they're <laughs> like yeah and you can tell when you go into those meetings there you know they gloss over they're like oh, okay you can tell when somebody's instantly interested right um and it's that sort of elevator pitch that you've got to give so we're, we're kind of like striking out we and we've pretty much struck out with anything that we brought to the table and then my business partner literally like on the fly says what about an idea called uh, should I stay or should I go? And you saw, you know, these, these <laughs> stand up straight up yeah, yeah, and go, um, what's that? And so she, so she explained it. Trust me, I'm sitting at the other side of the table going, um, what is that? Because she literally made it up on the spot. And we, I remember walking out of the meeting. And I'm like, where did that come from? Um, anyway, and, and the funny thing is both of those, and I, I love to talk about those shows to so my parents' house and um, the should I stay or should I go concept because both of those came out of real life experiences. So my parents' house was me being frustrated that I couldn't get my parents to renovate their house. The other show, this new show, um, my business partner was in that exact scenario. So she had, uh, she was living in a home in uh, downtown Toronto and uh, she didn't, she was kind of at that place. She'd been there several years and she was like, you know, should I stay in this home and renovate it? 
you know, because she since had children, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or should I just sell it and move to something that's going to suit my needs better? Should I stay or should I go? And that's how she, so she was in that, as I said, that real life experience. And that's how she had come up with the idea. So that show um, went on to become um, Love It or List It, which is now in its 10th season uh, and is, you know, seen, shown all over the world. Um, and it's, it became a very, very big, big production. Um, and uh, just ex quite honestly, just exploded. So um, so there, so there we are. We're all we're all caught up to date. <laughs> I, I definitely have some questions about the the love it or list it, but there's kind of two probably pretty dry questions. But I want to back you up because I am just curious about it. So yeah. first one is getting back to your writing uh, and your first stint on the writing show, and then as you went on your career doing a bit more of that. What was was that something that you were maybe nervous or because it's one of those things like you've never done it before. And that's a pretty critical aspect of the show. And yeah. so was that something where it was like, Oh geez, like a bit intimidating or was it just, what was your feeling on that? You know what? I mean, I, I, I didn't call myself a writer at the time, but I think it, it, it just, it kind of came naturally. Um, and uh, so it was, Again, a lot of this stuff, because, you know, we would work in, in lifestyle television, the beginning of lifestyle television, um, the budgets were actually quite small. So you're always working with a, a small crew. And, you know, most of us were doing two or three jobs. And uh, that's probably, as I said, probably how I got into doing some writing. Um, you know, maybe somebody didn't uh, show up that day or, you know, somebody, you know, left mid productions, you know, it would have been something like that, where it's like, you're literally thrown in and you have no, no choice. Um, and it's like, oh, okay. Um, you know, I can't hire another writer by tomorrow. So I guess I'll, you know, so it was literally trial by fire in those early days because you just, you did what you did. I mean, I would go out with, I remember shooting a show about lilac, in uh in Hamilton because down in at the Royal um Botanical Gardens in Hamilton they have uh one of the world's largest collection of, of lilac bushes and we were doing this show on lilacs and I always remember me you know my cameraman and I like hauling all this gear you know through the middle of this this botanical garden to get to this this lilac dowel that that's in the middle of the garden but you know what there's nobody else there that you know there was like him and I so you so you're gonna haul equipment and you know if you gotta make a sandwich that afternoon for the crew you're gonna do that so so as I said a lot of it was just you know kind of trial trial by fire um and and then, you know, when you're writing it, when you're writing a show, uh, you're, you're, you know, and certainly anybody at this point who's doing this, it's, it's, um, it's an ongoing, it's a dynamic process. So you, you write a script, but then on that day, who knows, things are going to change. It's very organic. Um, so you're going to, you're do, always doing rewrites as you go. Um, so, uh, so yeah, you just, you know, I just, I honestly, I just learned, uh, learned as, as, as I went uh, and really probably didn't have the time or the luxury to think, oh, wow, I'm, I'm not a writer. Why am I doing this? So, uh, and what I was doing seemed to be working out. So, you know, you just, you just keep going. So, but yes, of course, always, you know, I mean, when I first started directing, I thought, oh, I can't, 
I can't do this. I don't, I don't know how to direct uh, people on set. And then, you know, just had no choice, had to kind of go in and and do it. And then you got to go, okay, well, that didn't seem too bad. Because I remember saying, like, I mean, cameramen, there's all sorts of, they've got all sorts of jargon and lingo and, you know, set up this and these the different lights and you're and you're like i have no idea you know a close-up versus a wide shot versus a medium shot like what are you talking about so um so the one good thing about that is if you have a great crew you know you you're you're all working and learning together um so at the time i had to be confident enough and humble enough to be able to say to you know my cameraman you know you 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 need to help me um, we've got, you know, we've got two people sitting in a chair and I have to do an interview with them. Okay. You know, how, how are we going to approach that? Uh, because in a scene like that, you have to get multiple angles and multiple shots. So, um, so where are those cameras going to be? And yeah, so, so hopefully you're working with a very good crew. I mean, I, you know, I've worked with one cameraman, but for for over 20 years we've we've gotten we have crew that that have been that long with us so so it's a great relationship that'd be great too because you have such rapport with that person and professionally and personally it must be what are so it must be so refreshing just to have someone salt reliable yeah absolutely and you say you know let's let's get this set up and you know that they're you know i mean a a a camera a film crew or a television crew because you're working you know and i would say this about almost all of them because you're working very long hours uh and in a very generally very small intimate setting you you become very very close you're like family um and that's why when you always see these different shows when they they do the their rap party or um i mean i just i watched the end uh, my husband and i got into the big bang theory just recently and we watched you know the seven seasons i can't i can't maybe it was 12 i mean it went for a long time and then that end show and then they did the you know thing after the fact like they would have been you know they would have been people would everyone would have been bawling on set because if you've just worked with the same people for over 10 years in that kind of environment uh and then it's it's done it's very very emotional so so any of these like reunion shows and things that you see like as it mentioned about friends i mean yeah it has such a huge impact on on people in uh in their lives when they work that closely with with other people based on your experiences being thrust into uh, writing and then directing, what would be a piece of advice that you could give to someone or just your perspective uh, uh, to someone who is maybe they're trying to pursue, whether professionally or just as a hobby, some type Mm -hmm. of creative endeavor, whether it's, you know, writing music or lyrics or art, like just kind of anything, like what would you tell somebody what would be your perspective on that well i would always say uh follow your passion um and and keep going and keep you know because you're going to get not and you're going to get knocked down uh that's for sure um but you have to keep going so i'll give you a perfect example my my neighbor um contacted me a few weeks ago and he said his niece was uh had, was a recent graduate of, of of film school i believe and would i talk to her uh, about, you know, the industry, etc. And of course, I'm always, you know, more than happy and willing to do that. And, um, 
and my advice to her uh, was, of course, because of course the industry is a very tough industry to break into. Um, so my advice to to people that are are trying to get into the industry and are, are trying to break in is, you have to keep uh, keep keep your foot on that pedal. So. If that means that you have to go and do an internship, you have to go and volunteer, that's what you go and do because you have to get, you have to get in there to be, to be seen, to be noticed. Um, and a lot of people, young people, they, they'll graduate from you know, a film degree or uh, you know, in Toronto, we have the, the radio and television arts program at Ryerson. And then you know, they can't get, can't get that job. It's very tough. So they go off and they work. Like I remember my doctor calling me a few years ago and asking me to talk to his daughter. Um, and she had a theater degree and she was working at a, a department store. So same advice, like, yes, of course, you, you have to make a living and you have to work uh, and it might not be something related to, say, film or television or the creative arts, but you still still got to keep keep that foot in there. So if you've got a full time job or you're working at a department store because you've got to pay the rent, um, that's that's great. But on your weekends you know, get over to that theater school and, and volunteer if you, if you have to, um, because that's that. So if you're really passionate about it, you just have to, you just have to keep, as I said, keep your, keep your toe in, in the water, so to speak. Um, because then, you know, you're going to be, eventually you're going to be in the right place at the right time. And you're going to hear about that opportunity and, and you're going to get there. So, but it's, um, you know, it takes time. So the secret to success is work hard and then work harder. <laughs> exactly. And not, and not be afraid um, to, to try different things as well. Um, because people will always, you know, I've found people will always pigeonhole you. So for example, because I was uh, a television producer and I produced uh, a reality series called Love It or List It, when I first started pitching my book idea to, to agents, uh, I was told directly by one agent, you know, what makes you the expert on writing this book? Um, you're a television producer. You can't write this book. And I went like, yes, I can. Uh, and I will. And I was really, I remember walking away going, oh my God, I was like so deflated. But, uh, you know, after, after I picked myself up off the floor, I kind of, you know what? Um, yeah. I'm not going to listen to that that negativity, and I'm I'm the person to write this book because I'm passionate about the story and I want to tell this story, and I'm willing to put the time and the effort into doing it. So I am the person that that's going to tell this story. So, but it's it's very hard. It's very easy when you know you're you're as I said, you know, people tell you something or they kind of try to pigeonhole you. It's very hard. It's very easy to kind of go, oh, I just I can't do this, but. You, you have to keep going. Um, another quick, you know, quick example that I'll talk to you about is that, uh, so, you know, my business partner and I, we basically got very involved. We had, you know, uh, a machine, so to speak, of numerous lifestyle shows, you know, one season, I think we had five or six going, cooking, design, whatever, you know, all these different <laughs> shows. And I got uh, contacted by somebody who actually had, I had worked with. She was a casting director and she would cast our shows. Um, and she was a young woman and she came in to see me. 
one day, I'll never forget it. And she said, um, I have, I have breast cancer. And at the time she was maybe 32. She had a, a she just had a baby about a year, year prior. And she was thinking, she said, I want to do something about this, like, you know, make a show or something. And uh, I was like, Oh, my God, well, first of all, I couldn't understand why this young woman sitting in front of me had breast cancer. Um, I, like many people had always thought it was an older woman's disease. Uh, and I remember uh, thinking to myself, you know, when, when I when I turned 40, that's when you go and, and you get a mammogram, but never even thought of it before that. So I couldn't understand. So obviously I started, you know, looked into this and did some research and discovered that uh, breast cancer could definitely affect young, younger women. And if it did affect younger women, it was actually uh, um, much, much worse because uh, a lot of the different um, types of breast cancer are, um, are controlled by uh, female hormones. And a younger woman has more, more estrogen. And so a lot of women, for example, will develop breast cancer just after they've had uh, a baby. Um, this is a very common thing. So, so for a young, if a young woman, so naturally I think, I'm, well, if she's young, she's gonna be fine. But that's a, that I found out that wasn't the case. It could actually be, uh, much, much more serious. So from there, I just, so I'm telling this story because actually, I mean, it, it hit me so hard. And I remember I went to my business partner and I said, um, I wanna do a documentary. And she said, well, what do you mean? And I said, I, I wanna shoot a documentary about young women with breast cancer because I think, I think so many people aren't aware of this. And uh, I think it's just really, really important to get this message out. And so, off I went. And I mean, that had to be probably um, the most terrifying experience that I've ever gone through professionally, because I had no idea. I'd never done a documentary before. And um, I ended up shooting, uh, following five women for two years. And, you know, it, this was a very, very intimate story of their lives that I was telling. And I was with their families and I was in, in hospital rooms with them. And and again, it was, I had no idea. And I always remember one of the first um, shoots that we did, uh, we were going into a hospital room up at Sunnybrook. Uh, one of the young women was getting her chemo appointment. And of course, being a, the television producer that I was, I, you know, I call up five or six of my guys and go, okay, guys, you know, meet me up at Sunnybrook. We're going to shoot this. And I get up like, you know, I've got my cameraman and my sound guy and a camera assistant and whoever else. And, uh, we get up there and I realize very quickly, um, I can't take this crew into a hospital room. And so literally uh, had to ask my cameraman, how do you turn your camera on? Cause I have to go in and do this myself. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not kidding you. And, um, and they, they, of course, understood, they, they saw what the situation was, they knew and, and how do you yeah, how do you mic somebody up? Um, and, and as, as I said, that was, you know, one of the most valuable experiences I ever had. But again, just realized in the moment, um, I can't do what I what I'm normally doing. Um, anyway, so 
that was, uh, as I said, some, taking something on that I, I really felt uh, I was so intimidated about, so concerned about, so worried that I wouldn't, you know, that I that I wanted to be able to tell their stories accurately. And um, uh, and sadly, uh, two of the women, including the the woman that I knew, the casting director, two of them passed away, just you know, just after we finished shooting. Um, both of them were 36 at the time. Both had young children, so uh, so it was it was a very um, it was a very hard uh, thing to go through. And um, I have to say, I, <laughs> I haven't shot another documentary since. Um, but uh, you know, it was uh, one of the most incredible experiences I ever I ever had as well. So. And was that a, a documentary uh, series or a film? It was a film. It was, uh, it's called I Don't Have Time for This. And the Women's Network uh, ended up uh, buying it, purchasing it and airing it. Uh, and then it, um, it sold, uh, you know, and it uh, sold all over the world. Um, that's the other th aspect of the business that we haven't talked about, which is di distribution and how products gets get sold around the world um and uh, i always I, you know this is several years ago now but i remember getting i would get notes and uh you know emails from from people uh from around the world women from around the world who had who had seen the program um so it was uh it was a very uh, very wonderful experience to go through a couple episodes ago i had uh janie brown and Daphne Lobb come on the show. And uh, they're both involved in oncology. Daphne's a, a G oncology a GP and Janie's an oncology nurse and author. And mm -hmm. we covered her book on the podcast and it was all about uh, every chapter was a different person's story. Oh, and wonderful. I have a great book, we covered it and we're gonna be doing part two soon. And yeah, th those experiences are especially, I mean, anyone dying of cancer at any age is obviously, you know, it's terrible, but, yeah. you know, certainly when they're, you know, younger and when it kind of, I guess we kind of all have an idea of like when it makes sense to die, quote unquote, right. you know, like we, we have that idea. And then when yeah. you go through those experiences and, and, or hear other people's experiences with it, that just don't equate, it, it's just, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and again, at the time, I mean, one of the women I was, I followed, she was 25 and oh, she had, God. she had found a lump on her breast and she went to the doctors and they said, well, you know, don't worry about it. You're 25. Oh you know, my of course God. You no, I'm not kidding. And, you know, and of course it turned out she did. Uh, so she was, she was, cause she went and said, I'd like to have a, a mammogram. And they said, we're not going to give you, they, she was, she was actually refused a mammogram. Um, now, again, as I said, I think, you know, I hopefully uh, time and, and uh, education has changed a lot of that. But when we were shooting that documentary, she, yeah, she had been initially refused uh, uh, a mammogram because, because of her age. So, um, and the other thing that hits young women with respect to breast cancer is, is fertility. And, you know, if, if, uh, if you're going to go through breast cancer, I mean, the amount of uh, the drugs that you're going to be taking uh, will, will wipe away, potentially wipe away your fertility. So that was another big issue. So we went, you know, we were going to the fertility clinics and, and freezing eggs before you go through this process. So it's not just I've got breast cancer and I have to deal with it. I've got breast cancer, but what if I want to have children? So, um, so yeah.
certainly learn a lot doing, I mean, not just like personally, but medically too, like understanding those things. I mean, especially as yourself being a woman too, that's a primarily a woman's issue. I mean, men can get breast cancer too. I mean, that actually does happen, but I mean, certainly for you, that must've been a, a positive experience in, you know, in that way where it was very, very educational, albeit difficult, but yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so kind of the segue off that kind of related, but just as far as a bit of a dry question, I guess, but what's, what's sort of the difference between a producer and director just as far as, well, yeah, I'll just, I'll just throw that to you. Like what's the difference as far as the the job approach? So the producer is basically, um, there's executive producer and there's producer uh, director. Uh, and there's obviously many, many other jobs. There's associate producer. And, um, uh, but so uh, executive producer, I'm the executive producer of, of Love It or List It, uh, which, which basically, I mean, in Canada and the U.S., it's a slightly, slightly different because again, as I said, with respect to ownership, things like that in, in Canada, but it, that's basically the person who is, is financially responsible for the production. Um, they, they control the budget and they have invest, potentially invested. Um, like if you look at movies or programs in the US, you'll see maybe a dozen executive producers uh, because, and those are all the different individuals or companies that have invested um, into, that, into that budget. Um, so, so basically for us, we are the executive producers, which means, as they said, we are in, uh, we financially, uh, we are 100% responsible for the, for everything related to the production. We are responsible to the network, uh, for the program and, uh, meeting all of their needs. And we are responsible for the finances. So, uh, and how that is, how that is financed. And then again, how the budget is, is allocated. A producer is, is the, on on the on the ground um, person who is organizing um, everything related to that to that shoot to that production uh, you know and hiring all the the other crew that you will need so they're they're basically the boss on on set uh, executive producers you generally don't you, you wouldn't find them on set they'll go and visit of course but and say hi and have a cup of coffee and all that kind of stuff but but you're not physically doing anything on that set um, whereas the producer is is in control and then of course the director is working uh, with with the uh, with the talent um, and, and creating the the program so. I know it might be a bit of a silly question for you, but I actually never knew that. So I'm, I'm glad I asked the question because now no, no, it's, not silly. <laughs> it's not silly at all. So, so now let's get into, let's get into love it or list it a bit. So yeah. the original, cause I know there's a, a love it or list it Vancouver and so it was, yeah, we finished that. We did go. five okay. years. So I didn't that. Know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So because things are always in reruns, right? So, um, and then when we finished it, we st- then we then we're editing the show, so then it would air probably like a year year after the fact. Uh, so yeah, we finished that actually just at the end of two nineteen, um, just you know before everything related to COVID happened. Uh, that was a great experience. It was wonderful. We had a whole great crew in Vancouver for over five years, um, and uh, so as I said, that that. Um, that has ended and we um the original show which originally started in toronto so we did 
guess five seasons in Toronto and then um, the HGTV in the US uh, decided that they wanted to become the lead broadcaster on the show versus the Canadian network. Um, so we, we agreed to that because the show went down into the US and, and was became very, very popular. Uh, so then we ended up taking the show down to North Carolina uh, and we've been shooting down there for, for the last five, uh, five years. And we just brought uh, this show back to Toronto, which is, which is really, really terrific. So, um, so we're just starting shooting back here in, in Toronto and, and GTA actually in Southern Ontario. So. Well, and, and actually I got, I got a question about uh, going down to the States, but um, I'm not sure if you described it already. I think with your, the, Parents' place, uh, parents' house. We talked about that, but what's the actual format of of the love it or list it? So love it or list it is that yeah. Should I stay or should I go? So it's it's about uh, it's it's a very realistic situation that many many homeowners go through. Uh, that you've you've bought a house, you've been in a house, and then you know your life circumstances change, and there's something about a lot of times it's because you know people have had uh, a few children or you know maybe grandparents have moved in, um, particularly now. And then of course, working at home, I mean, things change, you know, like you, during your different life stages. So you get to a place and, and you say, you know what, this home just isn't like, it's not working for us. You know, we need two more bedrooms. We don't, the basements, you know, whatever it happens to be. So, so again, it's like, do we put the money into renovating this house? So it does suit all of our needs or do we just say, okay, that's it. We're, we're done here and we're going to find a home uh, that, that better suits our needs. So we have a designer and a realtor who are kind of competing for the, the homeowner. Um, and the designer uh, go, uh, the people leave the home um, and the designer and her, her team uh, rework what they have requested as best as she can, because there's always a budget in place and you can't do everything. Um, and there's, and there's always, people always ask me this, like, oh, you know, when things happen on the show, are they real? And if, if you've ever done a, a major renovation in a home, you'd know that, you know, okay. as soon as you start taking down walls and things like that, you, you're ultimately going to find surprises. And I mean, I've been through a few myself, so I, I know uh, how frustrating they can be. So yes, those are, those are very, are, are real issues, real problems. Um, and then the realtor in the meantime, so while their home is being redesigned, uh, our, our realtor host is taking them uh, and trying to convince them to, to buy, buy a new home. And it's hard, it's hard decision, very hard. Well, because it's real, it actually is real people. They're not like actors and, oh, this is my house, you know. <laughs> and then, and of course, you walk back into your home, you're, you know, and you're like, oh, my God. Because, of course, the, the designers, I mean, I'm, I'm always in awe of what, what designers do. Uh, so you walk in and it's not even your home. I mean, you're like, this is amazing. Um, so it's, but, but even though sometimes the home is beautiful and things have been redone, but maybe you still couldn't get, there's a lot of times where Hillary can't do everything. Like maybe she can't give you that fourth bedroom or something, you know, so you're not generally not going to get absolutely everything. The house is still, you know, going to be your house. Um, so maybe, you know, maybe that other house down the road is, is ultimately better. So, so it's, a, it's a tough decision. 
for for many many people because you're and you are because you're also very emotional i mean i was telling saying this to my husband just the other day i said you know every home i've i've bought and sold i've always had such a strong emotional attachment to my homes um that it's you know i go by like a few other homes i've owned in toronto <laughs> i drive by you know lovingly and, and to kind of just peek at them every once in a while because you know you, you you have a connection to to these these uh these places that you've lived in so so it's hard to give them up I, I just went through it last year I just you know I've been in this new this new home for six months and uh uh you know I still think lovingly of, of my old home that's not too far away and honestly actually that one it's it's too raw I haven't even driven by <laughs> because I think I'd be too I'd be too upset so I haven't even gone by yet uh, so well they become part of your their your your life story you know so it makes absolutely. sense you know you absolutely live there you laugh there cry there you know it's a yeah. it part of you you know yeah yeah the kids grew up there and you've got you know all their heights on the wall somewhere yeah. and, and stuff like that so but people are much more mobile i mean when i grew up we i grew up in this one house and and my my, my mother's is still in that house so there wasn't as much mobility when you know years ago people kind of bought a house and and that was it um whereas now it's that's obviously changed quite a bit so I did say earlier, I, I kind of interrupted you. It was, might have been a bit of a delay on the feed there, but I said, I do enjoy the show. I, I've obviously am a bit more biased to the Vancouver show, just as more relatable. But the funniest thing with that, and you know, Toronto housing market is expensive, but we always, the, the running joke with the Vancouver show is, you know, because you kind of know where the houses are more or less. Mm -hmm. And we always laugh like, oh, look at that piece of crap house of $2 million. Oh my God, you know? <laughs> It's crazy. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, and you know what? And Vancouver was ahead of Toronto. So we, when we were shooting in Toronto, you know, as I said, this is several years ago now. You know, I mean, of course, the prices were were high. And one of the issues and why we ended up shifting it to the U.S. is because the show had become very, very popular in the U.S., but the Americans could not relate to the prices that we were talking about. They're like, what are you doing? What? That's insane. Um, and so we went, uh, people always say, ask me, why did you go to North, uh, to North Carolina? And the network chose it um, because it's kind of middle America. And when we first went down to, to North Carolina and, and even to this day, I mean, you can buy a spectacular house down there for three, four, five hundred thousand dollars $500,000. I mean, US, but still. And so people can relate to that. And they were, but so the funny thing is though, when we were shooting in Toronto and then we went and set up in Vancouver, even <laughs> Torontonians were going, what's going on with these houses? Like we couldn't believe it. You know, it's some cottage somewhere and you're, yeah, it's like two and a half million. You could have, it's like you, because Toronto had not hit that, that level yet when we first went out to Vancouver. So we were shocked as well, absolutely shocked what was going on in Vancouver, so. Well, and, and the thing that I always, and I, I haven't, I don't really watch much TV anymore, but when I was watching the Love Airlisted show a little more frequently and, and other home lifestyle type shows like that, uh, one of the things that always kind of same thing, like that running joke is, also the the price of uh, or, the, or the cost associated with renovating mm -hmm. compared to the states to here you, twenty thousand dollar reno in Vancouver is maybe a bathroom maybe if and that's, oh, that's, that's, good. Not even. that's yeah. like, wow you know so yeah. like a, a house reno is yeah. 
hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then you go to the States and it's like, yeah, we did the whole house looks amazing. 50 grand. What? <laughs> How do you do this? I know. Yeah. It's very, very funny, but anyway, so. And and so the food- we're very we're, we're thrilled to be back in in Canada with the show. We're thrilled to be back in 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 Toronto. So it's uh it's a very exciting time uh, for the show. And uh, we've you know knock on wood we've just been very very fortunate because uh, love it or list it would be one of the I'd say one of the longest running Canadian shows and one of the most successful Canadian formats. And when I say formats, that's about that means we have we have sold the the concept of the show. Like, you know how Canadians have bought like, uh, you know, all the American formats, mm-hmm. um, like uh, America's Got Talent, so Canada's Got Talent and the Canadian, uh, the, the, the uh, what's it called? The, the Amazing Race, Amazing Race Canada. So those are formats that, that you're buying and that, then that allows you to produce the show in your country. Um, and uh, Love It or Listed is one of the most successful Canadian formats that's actually gone out into the world because Canada is used to buying them, but we don't really make them. Um, so, uh, so we were we've been very very fortunate. So there's a series in uh, right now in Australia, uh, which is uh, Love It or Listed Australia, which is really good. It's uh, two guys that are that hosted and they're absolutely hilarious. Uh, there's a long uh, a long running. Um, version of it in England. Uh, and then there's been other ones in France, Germany, uh, Belgium. Um, so it's, uh, it's been very, uh, very well received because, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what country you live in, you can still, you still relate to the idea. So. Well, and congratulations on that. I mean, that's a huge accomplishment. That must be kind of surreal too, to think like how it started off as a off the cuff hey i got an idea in a, in a yeah, pitch yeah. and then now it's multinational yeah. licensed internationally and yeah it's been incredible yeah it's uh it's been it has been incredible and we're you know as i said we've been very very fortunate and and as i mentioned before we've had you know long long-term crew on it that uh you know that uh make make the show what it is so and for the future of the of the show insofar as you're involved is that Toronto and keep going forward with that and then see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, Well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we're just going to keep, keep going from there. I don't think that we would personally do any other additional formats. We did one year, one season, it was called love it or list it, list it vacation homes. Um, and that, that was fun. Actually, it was, it was good. Cause so we were doing like cottages and ski chalets and things like that. So, so we enjoyed doing that one. Um, that, you know, who knows that could potentially uh, happen again. Um, but yeah, this this one particular one is is uh, back in Toronto. Will will keep us busy. Uh, we, we have some other we, some other you know show uh, concepts and things like that that are that are coming up, bubbling up. But everything got of course delayed because of because of COVID. So we had a, a couple other productions that were uh, potentially ready to go, but um, as I said, they got delayed because of COVID. So so onwards we go. No, that's great to hear. Looking forward to it. I'll start watching them. <laughs> when the new ones come out, I'll start taking a peek. Yeah. 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 So just coming back from short little break and we're going to dive into the book. And I think the way that we're going to do it is I'll just do a, a quick little read of, of the first paragraph. And then I have a few questions for you is kind of laying out the foundation for 
how this book came to be and you know background info like that and then we're going to get into to, to finish the podcast out we'll get into we're not going to go very far uh into the book but we're going to go it's all really good stuff so we'll get in there and and have some discussions and i have a few tangents and we'll have mm-hmm. a good time. The, the usual the usual shenanigans right all right perfect okay so page one of the introduction and again i'll show the book for the audience which, by the way, I, I on the last uh, with, with Janie and, and Daphne, I, I joked at the at the beginning because it's a hardcover book, and I have this weird thing where I, if I'm reading the book, I can't read it with the sleeve. It bothers me. I don't know why. Oh, yeah, yeah. Weird about me. But I what I really like about this book is that it's kind of like a hardcover paperback style. So it actually <laughs> it's like it. a combo. Yeah, but it's yeah. It, actually, it feels great. So. It's name for them and that type and I, I can't remember what it is right now but it's like um yeah they had they actually have a name for it in in the publishing world what what uh, that that book cover uh, is because it's not a paperback it's not a right. hardcover it's kind of like in between and it's got yeah. like a good I know this is like such a weird detail but it's got a good like feel to it like it I know it's a I'm a, I'm a kinesthetic learner so touch is like a big deal but yeah yeah anyway, total sidebar um, okay, let's do this. Introduction. 50 years ago on April 14th, 1971, a small group of inmates at Kingston Penitentiary, Canada's oldest prison, overpowered unsuspecting guards and instigated what was to become one of the most violent and devastating prison riots in our country's history. The early 1970s was a time of great political and social upheaval, and what was happening in our prisons reflected that change. Deteriorating prison conditions and the increasing awareness of basic human rights were creating a combustible penal environment both in Canada and south of the border. The civil rights movement of the 1960s had given rise to a new breed of inmate, politically aware young men with radical ideas of rights and freedoms. Prisoners wanted to be treated like humans instead of numbers, and they were demanding to be heard. You have taken our civil rights, but we want our human rights read a banner hanging outside the prison walls in Kingston during the riot. And so we'll stop there. Um, just kind of sets the, the basic premise of this book. Mm-hmm. So first of all, someone, I mean, we've been talking about your career and what I love about that, it, it's always kind of reminds me too, like when you, when you read about, um, I'm particularly interested in sports. And so like when you read about to- how Tom Brady got started, well, he got subbed in for the the starting quarterback at the time and the rest is history. And right. you kind of see that motif play over and over and whether it's yeah. acting, any any avenue really, you can always find that. And certainly yeah. with your career, there's elements of that where it's like, oh, I'm a writer and now I'm a director and can <laughs> you know, it just kind of all happens. Yeah. And, and then Love It or List It, obviously great show and starts yeah. off just off the cuff. It, it's, you know, it's fantastic. And so where does this book fit in, in that? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I have no idea to tell you the truth. Um, <laughs> no, I will tell you. It's, uh, it, so what happened was, uh, you know, moving along in, in my, my career in, in, in television, uh, the way that my, my business partner and I separated out the company is that uh, I was sort of the creative end and she was more uh, of the, of the business end, which meant, so I was like writing, you know, show ideas, pitch documents, scripts, 
and 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 always looking for different ideas and and she was like she's running the budgets and things like that so that's how we kind of separated things out based on our personalities I mean, she would call me and say, hey, I'm, you know, working on a, the budget for, you know, whatever. And I'd say, um, no, thank you. Because <laughs> so, our offices are beside each other. We're like, yeah, no, I'm not coming in. Um, anyway, uh, so I so I had been writing for a number of years, um, obviously, for, for, for my work. And um, I came to the point where I, where I thought, you know, I really enjoy writing, um, but I want to write for myself. I don't, I don't want to just be writing for, you know, what I do for a living. So I, um, I went, uh, I, I signed up for a program at the University of Toronto, which was a, a certificate in creative writing and uh, started taking writing courses and all different types of courses. So, you know, short fiction, uh, I did I actually did take a screenwriting course, um, children's fiction, you know, manu um, uh, memoir writing, you know, all different things. Uh, and, I, and I really enjoyed it. And, as I, and, and of course that certainly helped me in, in, in my work as well. I mean, the two, I couldn't, I couldn't really separate out the two, but it was um, really enjoyable. As I said, it was kind of more for me. And then I, I started a program uh, in uh, one of the programs in creative nonfiction. And honestly, I wouldn't have even known what it was at the time. Uh, and, uh, and I thought, hmm, I really, I kind of really like this, uh, this genre. And um, started looking at different books within that genre, uh, Canadian writers and, uh, his, you know, historical uh, creative nonfiction. I, and Quite honestly, I, I hit upon um, uh, one Canadian author. Her name is Charlotte Gray, and she's written uh, a few, quite a few books, and she's an excellent author. And when I read some of her books, I went, you know what? This is exactly the kind of writing that I would like to do. It's historical. Uh, it's a really compelling story, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of knew what type of book uh, or what type of writing I, I was really attracted to. Anyway, uh, long story short, the professor of that program uh, approached me. We were doing different, you know, writing exercises and things like that. And he approached me and he said, would, would you be interested in doing um, a, a master's in fine arts and creative nonfiction? Have you ever thought of that? And I said, well, no, I haven't thought of that because I, you know, I, I've got a full-time career. Uh, and he, cause he said, there's this program at, uh, at King's University of Kings in, uh, in, in Halifax. Um, and it's a, a two year program, a writing program in, in nonfiction. Uh, and, and again, I said, well, no, I'm, you know, I, I can't move to Halifax. And he said, well, it's, it's something called low res. And I said, oh, what does that mean? He said, well, it's low residency requirements. And what that meant was that it was a two-year program. And for two weeks each summer, you had to be in Halifax uh, to work with the teachers and the mentors and, and with the other students. And then there was a one-week residency in New York and a one-week residency in uh, in Toronto. So uh, in a two-year program, there were, it was um, two, four, six weeks that you had to be somewhere else. So I thought, well, you know what, I could maybe, I could maybe manage that. That sounds good. And also it was a nice, honestly, it was a nice excuse to get out and hang out in Halifax for a few weeks each summer. Um, so, you know, spoke to my business partner and I said, you know, I'm kind of thinking of doing this. What do you think? And she said, yeah, you know what, you should, you should go for it. So 
so off I went to, to Halifax. So this is the summer of 2016. And uh, part of the program was that in, to get into the program, you had to have a, a book proposal. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I did not have a book proposal. Uh, and honestly, as much as I was enjoying writing, I really had ne I, I didn't have that sort of burning, you know, um, you know, bucket list. I, I want to write a book. I, I, I loved writing. I've written a few um, articles for like the Globe and Mail, things like that. But I had never really thought about a book. But now I've got to think about a book because they've just let me <laughs> they've just let me into this program and they're expecting a book proposal. So um, and again, long story short, I had found uh, about a year before I started the program, I had, you know, opening up the paper one day. Globe and Mail. And on the inside cover of the Globe and Mail, every day they have a, a little uh, section that's called like this day in history. And I just happened to see this little article. I still have it somewhere in, in my office here. Uh, and it was a picture. It was a picture of Kingston Penitentiary. And it talked about this, this, this riot in 1971 and, and what happened and et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's really interesting. I, I've never heard of this. Um, and I knew it was April of 1971. The one thing I had heard about and I, what I, that I did know was that was the same year that Attica, that very famous Attica prison riot had happened um, in upstate New York. So I thought this is really interesting. Why have I never heard about this Canadian one? So uh, I did what I do with a lot of those kind of things. I cut it out of the, from the paper and, you know, being a television producer and creating different ideas all the time, I, I have folders on my desk that are basically ideas folders. And it's just like something, you know, will strike you something interesting, or you read about some personality and you're like, oh, okay, you know, I'm just going to keep that aside. So you've, you know, and so when I got into the program uh, at, at King's, I went, you know what? I, I remember that story about a riot. Let me let me go and find find that piece of paper and uh, you know start looking into it. So when I when I flew down to Halifax, I had I had a single piece of paper, um, a scrap of paper. So and and then the first week uh, of the program of the residency, by you know we started on the Monday, and by the Friday you had to stand up in front of the whole group and pitch your book idea. I'm like okay, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> but anyway, so I just, you know, went to, went to class during the day and, and worked, you know, diligently through the night researching everything that I could about that riot. And, and honestly, the, as soon as I started researching it and getting into it, I thought, wow, this is, this is an incredible story that I think many, many people haven't heard about. Um, so that's, that's how it all, all began. Um, and you know, worked for two years, developing the idea, researching the idea, uh, writing, uh, you know, as I said, with mentors uh, through the program. And then the program ended. And that was interesting because uh, I thought, wow, okay, now what do I do? I have to go back to work full time. And I've got kind of a book here. I mean, I was probably about, you know, I probably had half a manuscript at that point. Um, so I, uh, I took a, actually a little bit of a leave of absence from, from the TV world and, and, just, uh, and just kept going and said, no, I, I definitely, I definitely want to tell this story. So, uh, so four years later, here we are, four or five years later, yeah. 
A quick side note, because I have a, another question relating to that, but that actually makes a lot of sense to me as the reader to hear that process on how this book was written, because it reads like a, a novel, like it, mm -hmm. it doesn't have a, um, I mean, I've been pretty fortunate, like I, I really haven't read that many like uninteresting books, like every pretty much every book I've read on any topic has been pretty good, um, but definitely this one where like it really has that it's it's yeah it just it doesn't read like a dry piece of history it's like mm -hmm. holy yeah. crap like you, you gotta keep going yeah. like wow yeah and that's what creative nonfiction because nonfiction is traditionally you know a memoir or uh could be historical or could be academic it's 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 real um and then this genre this genre kind of actually really started I believe with um with Truman Capote and in cold blood that's one of the uh the, very famous the very famous and one of the original um books of this creative non-fiction genre and I actually have it here in my library and I've I've reread it so if you go back and reread that because yeah people were as I said were writing you were either writing fiction um or you know non-fiction tended to be dry uh and then somebody like truman capote came along and said you know what we can make this uh this more interesting so it, it reads like fiction but the number one rule of non creative nonfiction when you're writing it and i remember they gave they gave us all a sticker on our first day in, in our in our program um you know with the acronym of basically you can't make you can't make shit up that's what they said. And, and I have that in a sticker somewhere on a, on a binder. Um, and that's, and that's very, very difficult because when you're writing a historical nonfiction, you know, you're relying on, um, a lot of, uh, old resources and you get to places where, uh, which, which I did in the storyline where you're like, I can't find anything about, you know, X, Y, or Z. So, uh, you know, and that's why they take, it takes a long time. As I said, that the book took me four years to, to research and write very, very uh, time consuming. And so. that actually is a perfect segue to my next question, which is when it comes to investigating historical documents or like, you can use the internet, try and find stuff, books, archives like for something like this, probably a number of, of ways to um, find that information. Uh, what were some of the challenges when, when it came to, a little more specifically when it came to actually getting the facts? Uh, so the biggest, one of the biggest challenges that I had in writing the book, and I, I talk about it in the book, is that I was writing uh, about um, an organization, you know, our, our prison system in Canada that um, the Canadian Corrections does not really want to talk about. <laughs> so, um, so it's a very closed um, secretive uh, organization, to tell you the truth. So when I first started out, again, this is my first book, so I was quite naive. I, you know, drove up to Kingston. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna, you know, go into the belly of the beast and, uh, you know, talk to whoever I can talk to about this story and go to. There's a penitentiary museum right across from Kingston Penitentiary because they closed the they closed the prison in 2013. Um, but the Canadian Penitentiary Museum for all penitentiaries across Canada is right across the street. So I, you know, marched up there and said, uh, you know, I'm writing this story about the 1971 um, prison riot that happened, you know, 
uh, on the other side of the road and they kind of looked at me and said, oh yeah, no, we don't have anything about that. And I was like, really? You're the, you have all of the penitentiary records. You don't have anything. <laughs> I have a small yeah. thing to leave out. <laughs> yeah. Really? Um, so, so that was my, that was my trial by fire. And I went, oh, okay, now, you know, I realize what's going to happen here. So, uh, uh, but again, that, you know, that just kind of encouraged me even more, you know, as soon as somebody said, I don't know, I don't know if it's the red hair or the Irish, my Irish temper, but as soon as somebody says, no, I'm like, mm, yeah, I'm going to do that. Um, you know, don't shut that door on my face. Cause I'm coming, I'm coming in. Um, so yeah. So then what I did, uh, uh, I, I went to the archives, Ontario archives. I'd never been to archives before um, and understanding, having to understand what that whole process was because I thought it was just like a library and I could just like take stuff out. And I, no, no, <laughs> you've got to put some white gloves on uh, and then we're going to give you some of these materials, but you cannot remove them. And yeah, it was, it was like, wow, this is interesting. So that was, again, a whole new experience for me. Um, going down to the Toronto uh, Reference Library and going into, there's a microfiche uh, whole room there uh, that has all the, the, you know, main newspapers across the world. So just going through, you know, that microfilm um, and trying not to break the the machine when the things would <laughs> spin off the off the reels uh, and then uh, and then I also actually uh, which I think really saved me was I ended up I hired an archivist in Ottawa because uh, I couldn't get to the Ottawa archives and I found out that a lot of this the the government records were there. Um, so if you go to, uh, you know, the archives of Canada, you'll see on their website that they will say, you know, here's, here's some uh, names of, of archivists that you could, you can actually hire, um, cause they're there and they, and they know what they're doing. Um, so I hired a gentleman, uh, in Ottawa who worked with me, um, and was just, you know, just a, a, a lifesaver because he, he knew where to go. He knew where to look. And then he would send me because as I said, most of these are all, these are all government documents um, that have been, you know, long, long buried. Um, but he knew, he knew how to, he knew how to find them, which most you have to, you know, he's, he's, he has a specialization. That's what he does. So, so that was very, very helpful. And did you form a conclusion as to why there was so much red tape and, and just kind of hoops to jump through on, like when it comes to the, the prison rat? Well, it's, it's the reality, as I said, that's the reality of, of the Canadian correctional system. Um, it's, it's a very uh, opaque organization. And um, if you looked online to find out when's the last time, say, a Canadian journalist was in any of our federal penitentiaries, I think you'd be looking for a long, a long time. Um, <laughs> and if you think about it, we're not, you're not seeing stories from, from prisons, from any of our prisons, because they don't let anybody in. Um, the first thing I did actually when I uh, started the book is I actually contacted them and I said, you know, because they have a whole public relations group and I said, this is what I'm doing. And, and I actually, I'd love to come up to Kingston to do the tour of the penitentiary. Um, but, you know, because I'm writing this book, you know, I'd, I'd like to do, you know, kind of like a more of a media tour. Um, and they said, okay, you know, we'll, we'll put your request in um, and, you know, we'll get back to you. I'm still, I'm actually, that was in 2016 and I'm, I think I'm still waiting for that 
for the answer on that. So that's why I literally, I, I drove up to Kingston and, and got a ticket to, to the public tours. Uh, and I've been, I've been on uh, two, two tours, uh, which is fascinating. I would highly recommend if anyone's in the Kingston area to, to get a ticket to the, the, the public tour that they do. Um, and uh, yeah, so that, and, and they have not changed and that, quite honestly, is, is probably the biggest message that I can uh, extend with respect to this story, is that everything that I, that I write about that was happening in 1971 uh, in, uh, in a federal penitentiary in Canada is, is still happening 50 years later. So, um, because they, there is no transparency, um, there is no external, um, you know, there's, there's no external uh, organization kind of keeping an eye on, on what is going on in there. So they're not answerable to anybody. Well, and, and that's why, you know, books like this are important because then you get a window in, in, into what has happened and, you know, an idea of what's happening moving forward. Yeah, certainly. Uh, jumping, uh, just kind of right in the middle of the, just a short little paragraph, right in the middle of the introduction here. Um, you're just kind of at this point, you're just discussing how, uh, different perspectives are important to getting the picture of, as to what happened and, and why that, why that matters. And back to the book, uh, there are other voices too, voices from a different perspective, but equally poignant in retelling of the story. I interviewed inmates who took part in the riot, including one who was ultimately charged with murder. As a 17-year-old petty thief, Robbie Rabadou was thrust into a world where he learned how to fight in order to stay alive. Kingston Pen was the big house, and every inmate lived by the convict's code. Stool pigeons and sex offenders were the lowest of the low, and to this day, he has little remorse about killing one of them. So just a really short question and then a larger question. What's a stool pigeon? <laughs> I don't know if I want to know. <laughs> but what 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 is that term? Well, a stool pigeon is a rat. Do you know what a rat is? I know what that is. So somebody who tells. How how did that a stool like I'm curious like how did that term you know what? I honestly, I don't know. That's that's, that's a very it's a very old expression. But they um they they generally call them rats. So in, in the prison, uh, prison language lingo, it's, it's usually a rat. Mm -hmm. so, Interesting. Um, but yeah, stool pigeon. It's good. It's a good question. It's I probably kind of wondering. Probably, yeah. I'm like, hmm, seems like a odd, I thought it was going to be something completely different, but okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, cause they used to, they used to use pigeons like during the war, um, you know, they would, pigeons were, you know, carriers, they would carry messages. They right. put like little messages around their legs and things like that. Um, so, so that's part of like the, the pigeon will tell. So a stoolie again is another, so uh, it's another word that, uh, you know, was used for, you know, telltales. So stoolie and pigeon. Yeah. That's probably how it came together. <laughs> little linguistic. You don't have to Google that. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but kind of the, the bigger question uh, with, with just that little paragraph, uh, what was that experience like talking to Robbie? Yeah, very interesting experience because I, uh, I, I was in contact with somebody that knew him, that had worked with him um, uh, through, you know, rehabilitation programs and things like that. And we set up a call. He's out uh, in the West Coast. And I was and I honestly, I was like, wow, because I at that point, like I knew 
I knew who Robbie Robidoux was before I spoke with him and I knew <laughs> what his his role was in the riot. Uh, so it was very intimidating to get on the phone call with this individual knowing what I knew. Um, and but it was fascinating because I do, I will clearly say that by the end of that phone call, I had such a different perspective on who this individual was because as I you know, mentioned in the book, this, this was a kid who was a very typical uh, inmate you know, uh, came from a, a violent, broken home, was in foster care by the age of seven. And from foster care, he went to juvenile detention homes. From juvenile detention homes, he went to, you know, uh, provincial prison, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and what they would do is they would just graduate up the system until at 17, he's in a federal penitentiary. He's in Kingston Penitentiary. So as he said to me, he said, you know, i I'm just a product of, of this system. Um, and I learned to become um, a fighting machine because in that system, in that world, it's either, you know, kill or be killed. So you, you have to make that decision as, as, as a young person. Uh, and I've, I've spoken with many, many Rob, Robbie Robidoux since then. Um, I just did a, a podcast about uh, a young man, last, his name was Ty Khan, and he was the last man to ever escape from Kingston Penitentiary. And it's the exact same story, you know, again, product of the system, foster care, group homes. Um, yeah, so uh, it's, it's very tragic. Um, and, and these, you know, in 1971, the vast majority of, of the guys in there were, yeah, 17, 18, 19 year olds. And they were, they were, most of them were petty thieves as well. Cause what would happen is that, you know, you're a 14 year old kid and you steal something or you steal a car and then you're, you're put in uh, you know, a group home or juvenile delinquent uh, facility. And then, then you get out and then you, you kind of do some other silly petty thing. And then, and then your sentences are just getting added on. And with, for federal penitentiary, any sentence two years plus a day, you, you're off to a Kingston penitentiary. So this is what would happen. None these weren't hardened criminals. They were like, you know, kids, petty thieves, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but then they're all of a sudden they're doing, they're doing big time, hard time in a very uh, unforgiving environment. And you would think for, and we'll get into a, a bit of a bit of the kind of dark side of, of Kingston, but for a, a prison where it's uh, hard knocks, I think it's an understatement, you yeah. would expect to find, you know, kind of your run of the mill, antisocial, violent behavior, you know, criminals, you know, murder and you know, aggravated assault, you know, things that are pretty serious, but you know, that wasn't the case. and. Anyway, we'll, we'll get into that, and, and it's also in the book to, for, for the yeah. reason as well. The interesting for, thing about that time frame, and I do talk about it in the book, is that 1971, it was, it was before, it was just on the cusp of, of drugs entering the prison system. And once drugs got into the prison system, then gangs got into the prison system. And who was going to control that drug trade as, as it would be very much probably to this day. And this was just, just before that. So there was, there wasn't that element. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's pretty critical, especially when more so um, particularly in the States, once the war on drugs, that horrible idea 
uh, once that kicked off, that really changed the, the makeup of, of the prison systems. And yeah, nationally, absolutely. it's kind of had a, a similar effect, but certainly observable in yeah. the US. The introduction ends, and you kind of alluded, uh, you made a comment about it earlier, um, but it's a, a quote by uh, Dostoevsky. Love him. He's a brilliant writer. Um, great quote. And the, the quote is, the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. But how are we, and, and then the, the, your note is, but how are we to judge if we are still not even allowed to see inside? Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. We're still not allowed to to uh, to see inside. Page ten. Uh, in total, seventy-eight men from range two were gathered in the prison gym that night, referring to April fourteenth. William Billy Knight, prisoner number six six two two, was one of them. Everyone at KP, as the Kingston Penitentiary was nicknamed, knew Billy Knight. As the prison barber, he interacted with most of the inmates. Cutting hair was a trade he had picked up over the years while incarcerated. Strict adherence to personal grooming was one of the basic rules on the inside. Hair had to be short and beards and mustaches were not permitted. When inmates came out of the hole or solitary confinement, they were immediately handed off to Knight for the removal of any unruly hair growth. Fancying himself a fashionable guy, despite his less than stylish surroundings, Billy's hair was always meticulously groomed into a high 1940s pompadour. Each strand of wet hair, uh, each strand of hair wet combed to stand out in a high front wave above his forehead. A well-liked mouthy type, Knight never backed down from an argument. He was a strong advocate for exposing conditions within the prison and was always making impassioned speeches for anyone to listen. If anyone had a grievance with the administration, as many did, they knew to talk tonight about it. He was a natural leader among the inmates. He was even writing a book called The Walking Dead, an autobiography and expose of prison life. He claimed it was going to revolutionize the system. So what was that discovery like for you? I mean, and Billy, you know, he's pretty predominant character, if you will, in, in, later on. Um, but just, just that two, those two paragraphs, so, so many interesting things to talk about, but I'll just yeah. kind of generally throw it to you. Uh, just talk a little bit about Billy. So Billy Knight, I mean, he was, he instigated the riot. And uh, from what, you know, I, I learned and gathered, he was, yeah, certainly a, a, quite a character. Um, and again, very similar to what I just said, he was he was a petty petty criminal, petty thief, uh, had kind of grown up through the system. And you know, I mean, I know once he was charged because he he broke into a store in Kingston and stole some you know cigarettes and some clothing. So uh, you know stuff like that. And then he ended up uh, in uh, in Kingston Penitentiary. Um, the funny, interesting thing about Billy Knight was I had I had. I had kind of gotten wind about the fact that he was, he had written this manuscript and, but I couldn't, I couldn't find any evidence of it. And, and again, you, when you're going through all these documents and, 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 and things, you're like, okay, is this true? Is it not true? And, and I can't put it in unless I've really, you know, clarified. So, so the, the manuscript, the walking dead, I'm like, okay, well, 
you know, maybe that's just hearsay. I, I, I don't know. I actually found Billy Knight's lawyer. So Billy Knight is charged after the, um, after the, the prison riot. And I was going through some documents and I see the name of a lawyer. And I'm like, oh, okay. So as anytime I'd see a name, of course, I'm going to Google it. Many of the people that were involved in the story have, have since passed away. But I thought, okay, you know, let me check this name. And sure enough, this lawyer is actually still practicing. He's in his, his mid 80s. He's not far from me in Toronto. Um, a, a man by the a wonderful man by the name of Barry Swadron uh, has a, had an incredible uh, legal career. And uh, so I email him and say, hey, you know, this is who I am and this is what I'm doing. And do you remember a client by the name of, you know, William Billy Knight? And he's, oh yeah, of course, of course. Um, and, and that story of how he represents him uh, later in the book is quite an interesting story. Anyway, so he said, yeah, come on down, you know, to, to my offices just down on Berkeley Avenue. So I went down one day and, uh, and met this gentleman. And as I said, he was, he was very, uh, very lovely. And so we're just, we're talking about Billy Knight and he's, he's, you know, telling me about this guy and this recollecting, um, you know, the, that time frame, which is a, again, many, many years ago. And I, so I said to him, I said, you know, by the way, I said, I, I you know, I've, I've heard about this, that he was maybe writing, uh, he'd maybe written a manuscript and he, he wanted to get the story out and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and Mr. Swadron looks at me and he says, um, Kind of thinking he's like he said yeah i might have that down in the basement <laughs> say what what do you mean and he's like yeah you know what I, I he gave it to me because he wanted me to get it out to publishers and i'm thinking you've got to be kidding well, he I said you know what he said i but he said but i've thrown away a lot of my records old records and oh. stuff so he said, give me a day and let me see and as i said this is man in his like mid 80s so the next day he calls me and he's like, I've got it here if you'd like to come and get it. So I just couldn't. So I actually have that original manuscript handwritten in Billy Knight's handwriting. Um, and it was, uh, you know, about this thick is quite thick. And I thought, and I couldn't read it. And it's on like, um, you know, legal, legal size paper. And, but I, I couldn't write, make out his, his writing. So I thought, what am I going to do with this? So my husband is a lawyer and uh, he has a legal assistant. And he said, you know, my legal assistant, you know, cause they're used to kind of seeing documents like this. She, she, you know, if, if you, if you hire her, uh, you know, maybe she'll do, she can do this just as a side, you know, on the side and, you know, take it, take her time. So, so I, that, you know, I ended up calling, uh, calling this, this young lady and said, you know, can I, I don't know how much she'll even be able to decipher. Uh, so sent it off to her and, you know, probably a month later, I got this fully, you know, typed out manuscript uh so so what i'm actually trying to do with that manuscript i have a facebook page uh dedicated to the the 
1971 riot. Um, and I've actually tried, I've put it out a few times because a lot of people are, are contacting me on that Facebook page and saying, oh, I was there or I knew Billy Knight or I knew so-and-so. And so a few times when somebody said, oh, I knew Billy Knight, I've, I've put it back out there. Like I, I knew he had two daughters. And so I would, I would like to get this actual original manuscript back to his family. It, it doesn't belong with me. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to keep working on, on getting that into the, into the, the hands it needs, it should be in. So, but what a crazy, it was just a, such a crazy uh, stroke of luck. I couldn't believe it. Well, that's Billy's Gulag Archipelago. That's, yeah. that's what it is really. Yeah. yeah. It's that side, yeah. this is, we're going to blow the lid off this place kind of thing. Yeah. And, it, and that's how, like at the beginning of the book, I have his whole childhood history because he wrote all that in his manuscript, um, you know, about his childhood and his, he had a, a younger brother that he got hit by a car and, and was killed. And so that's how I was able to get that information because he, it was right from his, his own handwriting. So. That was really funny when you're saying, as soon as you said, uh, my husband, he's a lawyer. I knew exactly where that was going. He's yeah. either giving it to an articling student or he's giving it to his assistant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I honestly, I paid her separately. I paid her separately. So, um, so yeah. So funny. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a, and, and so that, so the manuscript is that, is that is that published or um, no? He never got it published. As I said, he tried. He gave it to his lawyer to try to send out. And actually, I have a number of letters from publishers that um, you know had looked at it because what happened? Um, gosh, I'm trying to think. Around the same time was a, a very famous prison book was written by Roger Caron. It was called Go Boy, and that was Roger Caron's personal memoir and experiences of being in in federal prison, including Kingston Penn, and it won the Governor General's award that year. So I think there was this idea that, you know, for Billy Knight that, I, you know, if, if Roger Caron can get his story out, maybe I can get mine out. Um, and then Roger Caron wrote a second book um, called Bingo, which was about the Kingston Penitentiary riot. So my, my book is the second book that has been written about this particular riot. Um, so I had this wonderful resource that was written, I think it was published in 72 or 73. Well, actually, I, I don't know. I have it here somewhere in the office. But anyway, and Roger Karen lived through this riot and he wrote about it. But what I was told at the time um, was by like other people was kind of like, don't believe everything that you've you've read in that book. It's it's not, you know, necessarily all true. He may have embellished because he did since passed away. So I thought, okay, so I said, okay, I've got to go, I can't put, I can't um, talk about anything that Roger Karen wrote about, again, unless I verify it. Um, so uh, I was able to finally, through uh, freedom of information and all sorts of, um, you know, jumping through all sorts of hoops, I was able to finally get the original trial transcripts of what had happened. And these were again, you know, because people were charged with murder. Um, so these were the eyewitness accounts, these other inmates that uh, risked their own lives in testifying against, you know, other, other inmates. Um, and it was all, again, their, their, their words, uh, the original words of what happened. So I was actually able to go back uh, through Roger Karen's book and say, 
it, it actually was most of it was true he, he because some of it i mean as you get into the book it's unbelievable uh it can be it's quite graphic it's some of it's really horrible to read and so yes even when i first read about it i'm like oh okay i think this has been sort of exaggerated and embellished and and i can say today unfortunately it actually wasn't um so um so yeah yeah <laughs> but billy knight no he, unfortunately he never got his his manuscript uh published so well if that ever does get released let me know i'd love to <laughs> yeah. that. that's, a cool, that's a great piece yeah. to have yeah absolutely yeah. um just kind of a little bit this is right at the end of uh chapter one this is just describing i guess the the culture of kingston and uh, kingston prison and then the area as well uh, clinging to an archaic military system of strict order and discipline seasoned guards reveled in punishing inmates for the smallest infraction shirts had to be buttoned and tucked at all times hands had to be removed from pant pockets when walking and there was no talking past 8 p.m the penitentiary rules stated that an inmate uh, that an inmate could speak with the officer in charge of him only in matters connected with his work. He had to approach the officer in a respectful manner, address him as sir and stand at attention. Step out of line and you could lose hard earned privileges or worse, you went to the hole. There is little pride or feeling of accomplishment associated with being a prison guard. It was the occupation of last resort, the job you took if you couldn't get anything else. Poor public attitudes toward the many prisons in the Kingston area also contributed to a lack of respect for guards in the community. Guards did not wear uniforms out in public and their families kept to themselves in the city. They worked a lot of overtime because of constant staffing shortages, but they knew where to get a cold beer when their shift was done. The Portsmouth Tavern or the Ports in the adjoining village was a place you went to drink if you worked at KP. That really stood out to me because what it not only shows is that there, there was a, they, it's almost like the guards themselves understood that there was shame at, in what they were doing. And that was manifested outside of the prison walls. It was in the community. Like you couldn't, like the fact that they even say your families had to keep a low profile, like that's actually kind of serious. Like that's, that's not trivial. Yeah, and Kingston Pen is—I mean, it's—it's—it's it's, you know—it's—it's it's a penitentiary city. Uh, there's you know there's over half a dozen um, uh, facilities you know within the the you know the city limits of Kingston. So so there was a you know that was like one of the biggest employers in the area. Uh, and I was I was very surprised when I first heard that that they would not wear their uniforms out in public and they they really kept to themselves. Um, and the the Portsmouth Portsmouth Tavern is still there, um, and it's you know one of whatever you want to imagine the Portsmouth Tavern being, it is. <laughs> so it's a it's quite quite a you know a, a place to be. So so that yeah that was that surprised me. Um, but again they. Um, you know, back in in sort of the the history of, of prison prison guards, like in the 1950s, 
many of those were ex, they were ex-military. These were men that had come back from, from the war. Um, and it was a very militaristic type uh, environment. They actually wore their uniforms actually looked like military uniforms. Uh, and then by, you know, by 1971, um, that sort of older guard had, had, had left. Um, but you had this new group in who, um, who did not have any formal training. Uh, they were, a lot of them were, were individuals that, you know, they, maybe they tried to get on the police force and if they, they, they didn't get on there or uh, maybe firefighting. Um, so this was almost some, in some respects like the job of last resorts. It was a good job, obviously, you know, good pay and pension and all those things, but um, it was a very, very difficult job. So, um, so the people that were in the prison versus some of the people who were guarding the prison, you know, there was the, you know, six degrees of separation there. Um, and then that changed dramatically, like in the eighties, uh, you know, the, 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 the college opened up, um, in the eighties, they brought in female correctional officers and, you know, they, they had to have higher education qualifications and degrees in social work and psychology. So, so, but in 1971, it was still very much kind of the, a working man's job. And related to that, you, you do get into the details of that, um, but obviously there was some legislation that, that came in later on and which had a huge impact on the day-to-day -day operations of, of prisons and yep. um, establishing grievances and remedies for that. So that that was uh, later, but yeah, certainly it was kind of the, the, the overarching theme of Kingston at the time. Basically it was the Wild West. Like it was just... Yeah wild <laughs> you know i love the i love the expression that it's in i wrote about in the book the toughest 10 acres in canada the last section we're going to cover uh just i guess sort of leads into the events on the the when the riot actually kicks off mm -hmm. so there's just a bit of background information here um Kingston Pen was considered the toughest 10 acres in Canada, and in many respects, it was like a small walled-off inner city. It had its own government, police force, hospital, school, churches, and industries. Its citizens, for the most part, obeyed its rules and laws, but adherence to the inmate code was the only thing that counted, and an inmate's true standing was determined by his fellow prisoners, who would classify him as a wheel, a solid guy, a tough guy, or, if they thought he was an, he was an informer, a rat. Basic tenets of the code were never trust or support a screw or the prison administration, never squeal on a fellow con, never steal from another inmate, and never never enter another man's cell unless invited. The inmate code was a was really a guidebook on how to succeed in prison by not really trying to reform, wrote former inmate Roger Karen. Mm -hmm. In order to gain acceptance, one must follow the code to a fine degree. Basically, you were to mind your own business and do your time. Don't be a fly on the wall. Wise cons would advise and instead, instead be the wall. Violate the code and your life became a living hell. At the prison heart of the city was the dome and in the center of the dome was a hefty brass bell that had ruled over the prison population for decades. From the guard's point of view, the bell kept the inmates in line, but for the prisoners, it was an abomination, a hated symbol of repression. The bell controlled the inmates every move. It rang to wake them up, to send them off to work, to announce every meal, and to send them to bed. By the end of each prison day, the bell had rung over 100 times. 
about the hated gong, Roger Karen wrote, to the cons, it was an object of repugnance and outrage, an unjustifiable punishment, a brass monster that we were convinced had been designed solely to shatter our nerves with its loud and strident ringing. For the prison staff, it was the golden cow. And so we'll, we'll leave it off there. And, and I think it's reason I wanted to highlight that one to close it out is because I, I think it does a good job at describing the, the tension and, and through the use of symbolism as to how that bell um, was just so hated and, and what it represented. And, and it's interesting when people do, you know, generally speaking, human behavior, there's usually, there, there's a purpose to it. There's a reason people want to do something. And certainly when the riot kicks off and the shocking brutality and just, just the fact that it even happened at all was, was just pretty mind blowing and kind of, what sort of the, the kind of the inception and where the where the uh, where it starts to fracture outwards it seems to start there and and then obviously that's literally i think that was 20 page 23 or 26 so haven't even touched it but it's just fantastic and uh, thank you very much for writing this book and and thank you so much for for coming on here and speaking with me we talked about a a million topics but i had a great time and it's excellent uh experience for me just to pick your brain about this book and I really enjoyed it and I've said it 50 times I'll say it again go get this book it's fantastic and uh before uh last thing too uh you mentioned that you have a podcast what's the title of that what's it called yeah it's uh it's called story hunter podcast and it's uh it's a true crime network and uh basically going back into uh you know true crime, historical true crime. Every story uh, does have, is Canadian um, and has a Canadian component. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's been really terrific to go back in and, and look at some, um, you know, some older stories that were, uh, were big, big stories at the time. I mean, I go back, there's one I know I did in the forties, uh, actually two in the, two in the forties. Um, and then, you know, other, other decades and, and that. So, uh, so it's, it's really interesting. And I, I think, you know, bringing those stories to, uh, to a podcast uh, audience and to maybe a new, a new demographic has been, has been really exciting. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for being here and, and thank you so much for sharing your experiences and, and your work. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great.